resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on earth. This is a little uh, excerpt from Jesus uh, Vindicated by Timothy Keller. Um, We should be more sympathetic to our skeptical friends, he writes. The resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. And the reason is because how do people decide what they believe? They decide what they believe by reading it and saying, I like it or I don't like it. Over the years, I've had so many people say, well, I could never be a Christian. I say, why? Well, there are parts of the Bible I find offensive. I remember years ago, it had to do with money. In my little church in Virginia, people were often offended by what the Bible said about money. Today in New York, there are, uh, they are much more offended by what the Bible says about sex. I usually say, let me ask you a question. Are you saying because there are parts of the Bible you don't like that Jesus Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead? They say, well, no, I guess I'm not saying that. I said, well, every part of the Bible is important because is important, but would you please put the ethical teaching aside for a minute? And here's the point. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you're going to have to deal with everything in the Bible. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't know why you're vexing yourself over that. But the fact of the matter is, Paul was more offended by Christianity than you. He was killing Christians, and we don't advise that. But when he realized Jesus had been raised, it didn't matter what offended him anymore. It didn't matter because it was true. And we have to keep that in mind. The resurrection is a paradigm-shattering historical event. I thought that's a pretty powerful little uh, uh, statement there. And it is true that the resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the earth in that sense. Didn't want to do that there. Um, But... Thinking about this reality, let me start with this question this morning, ask you this simple question. Why do I believe in Jesus? Like, why do you believe in Jesus? What would you answer that question with? What is the reason that you have faith in the Bible and in Christ? And we're in week seven of this apologetic series where we are defending the faith, providing rational answers to a reasonable faith. And today, our defense will take us to Jesus and the gospel. And what is the gospel? The fact that Christ died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose again. And uh, we're going to talk about the defense of that today a little bit. And um, really, it's, 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 it's an interesting thing. Where do we stand? Why do we believe that? Why do we believe that? And um, the reality is, when you think about Jesus and the gospel, they are so interconnected. Like, to defend Jesus is to defend the gospel, and to defend the gospel is to defend Jesus. You can't really separate them. They are one in the same in many ways. And so, you know, it goes back to that quote I shared last week from C.S. Lewis, that Jesus is either a, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And uh, this idea that he was just a good teacher doesn't work. He, maybe you could say he was a crazy teacher, but he wasn't just a good teacher. I mean, he either is who he says he is, or he was something uh, that someone that had just kind of lost his mind, maybe. Today, then, the evidence for Jesus and the gospel and that opening question again, why do I believe last week we looked at the claims that jesus made we talked about those in the scripture and and in a sense how he tells us who he is and tells me at the same time who i am but today we want to get a little more into this the the claims that jesus made and and really what is this how does the scripture give us evidence that jesus is who he says he is and you know we uh we think about the miracles that Jesus did, did a lot of miracles. John specifically highlights eight of them and calls them signs. In fact, John at the end of his gospel says this, now, many, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in, the, in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing you may have life in his name. And you know, there's something here that I have shared a lot before, and I'll say it again. Just the ABCs a minute here of the miracles of Jesus kind of like when, when you think about his miracles. One thing, the miracles of Jesus did not prove that he was God. They proved that he was sent from God. And that might not seem like a big deal, but it really is. Because in, in, in our instinctive sense, I, I find myself, this: you, you see a miracle, oh, that just proves that Jesus is God. Well, no, not, not necessarily. That was not the point of the miracles. Um, just like Peter and Paul did miracles, and the miracles didn't prove that Peter or Paul were God, right? 
No, they were sent from God. That's what the sign gifts were, the miracles were to prove you were sent from God. Remember at this time that Jesus has laid aside his divine uh, privilege, you know, his, his, his supernatural divinity and power to take on life as a man. And so he set that aside. He's not playing, as we always say, his God card. One example of this is when he starts his ministry. Remember, he's baptized by the Holy Spirit. Why does he need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit's going to empower his ministry. If he was just operating on his own God power, being the divine Son of God, the second of the Trinity, he wouldn't have needed the Holy Spirit to come and empower him. So that's just a little bit of evidence there. So, but no, here the passage tells us, tells us this reality. It tells us why he did these miracles. The miracles of Jesus then proved that he was the Messiah. That he was the sent one, that he was the Messiah. And this is really important. We have to know that Jesus is the one promised from Genesis chapter 1. That Christ did indeed send himself to us as he said he would. And so that's what's so important about all these miracles that Jesus did. It's not they prove that he's God, but they prove that he is the Messiah, the one sent from God. And then by extension we know this from the scriptures, that the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one, is in fact God. So, yeah, it comes around to that reality that the Messiah is going to be God himself. God is sending himself. John deals with this immediately in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And down in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God, the only God, who is at the Father's side has made him known. So, no one's seen God, but there's this God that's part of the Godhead at the Father's side. The Son has made him known. So the Messiah is God. Clearly, that's true. But the miracles don't prove he's God. The miracles prove that he has been sent as a man to be the Messiah to redeem us from sin and death and hell. Now, you know, it's fascinating whenever I do a series, this seems to always be the case. You get into a series and it kind of, God just kind of takes it in ways that you don't always know it's going to go. And he, he starts to, to develop maybe an underlying theme you didn't expect. And that's been true in this series as well. I've seen this the last few weeks. This idea of my life defending the gospel. And, and the reality is we, t we talk about this compelling story that the gospel is and that Christ is. But it's more than simply telling a compelling story. It's the idea that we are to be a compelling story. It's about me being a compelling story when it comes to sharing the faith. There's this idea, I, early on in this apologetic series, I, I saw this question raised, like what's the difference between apologetics and evangelism? And I think it's an interesting question, and I think in some senses they do intersect. They, they intersect like apologetics is the defense of the gospel and then evangelism is how I share that defense of the gospel in, in a loving way, in a tender, compassionate uh, way that, 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 uh, that resonates with people so they too can come to know Christ. But so there's this idea in this series that as I try to make a defense of the gospel, God wants my personal life and my personal faith to be a portion of that defense. So I can go through the scriptures and give all the arguments and all the scriptures and, and, and all the defense right here, but in, in, at some level, right, God wants my life to be part of that defense. First Peter 3.15, our key verses again. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So there's this idea that I'm defending the hope that I have, but there's the sense where my hope is part of my defense. Like I have hope and, and this is what Christ has done in my life and this is how Christ has worked in my life and this is how Christ has proved himself in my life. So we need to need to understand that. Which is another question I could just pose as we stop for a minute and think about this question briefly. Why does the gospel, why does Jesus' death and resurrection give me hope every day? I mean, why does it? In case the first question, you know, like, why do you believe? You said, well, I believe because I have hope. Okay, well, let's drill down a little deeper here. Why do you have hope? Why does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, why does what's in the scripture give me hope every day? So a couple questions to kind of dwell on, and I'll give you some at the end that you can use to kind of even work into your own testimony, some ideas <clears throat> that can help you as your life helps make a defense of the gospel. So here's our big idea today. God wants my life to be a, de to be a, de a defense of the gospel. God wants my life, my very life, to be a defense of the gospel. We'll see this was true of the disciples the, uh, became the apostles. But God wants my life as well to be a defense of the gospel. God wants me to, in some ways, 
as I defend the gospel, funnel that defense through my own life as I take ownership of this evidence then. So the evidence for Jesus, we're going to see this today really actually in three directions, primarily in two directions, but I'll give you as we close just a third direction as we look at the evidence of Jesus here in the scriptures today. The evidence for Jesus, okay, there we go, the church at Pentecost. Let's start here in Acts 1, 1 through 3. This is the church at Pentecost, and we'll start here in verse 1, and this is what Rick read earlier in the first book, O Theophilus, which is the book of Luke. So the writer of Acts is the writer of Luke. We'll see a connection between them this morning. But in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now think about the context here. We're after the resurrection. <clears throat> so from the resurrection of Jesus, which happened, or the crucifixion of Jesus, which happened on Passover, <clears throat> to Pentecost is 50 days. 50 days transpire. And what you have is you have 40 days, uh, actually, that transpire. I'm getting this wrong in my mind. Yeah, there's 40 days that transpire until Jesus' ascension. So Jesus is crucified, um, and then there's 40 days, and he is actually ascended. And in those 40 days, he teaches his disciples. He, then the disciples for 10 days go in the upper room there uh, in Jerusalem, and then Pentecost comes, and the Holy Spirit falls 50 days after. That's the context of what is going on here. So we're talking about these 40 days. Then we're going to look at the 10 days that follow the 40 days. But for these 40 days, it says he presented himself alive to them by many... Uh, proofs and and some translations say many convincing proofs because that word there for proofs is is really like an emphatic sort of proof now we talked about this so many times like the disciples they they got the like last week peter said you are the christ the son of god so they got that they understood that part about jesus being the christ being the messiah but there was an issue though they didn't understand what it meant to be the Christ or to be the Messiah like you know right so they're looking for a political victory a national deliverance a coming kingdom and of course Jesus has other plans and so that's the issue that's at stake here he came to secure our spiritual victory earn our eternal redemption and make us new creations that's what he came to do. And so Jesus is going to prove to himself over these 40 days. He's going to prove himself to them. So let's go back to day one of these 40 days, resurrection day. And we're back in Luke now. Luke wrote Acts, but let's go back to Luke. And what's happening, there, there's two of Jesus' followers, not, not, not of the 12, but they're traveling to Emmaus, and they are intercepted by Jesus in their travelings. And there's this ensuing conversation that unfolds. Listen to the conversation. Um, okay, yeah, Jesus... Proved himself to them, if I didn't put that on the board yet. That's the, that's the first point. Jesus proved himself to them over these 40 days. I am the Christ. Now watch what happens here on day one as they're traveling, Luke 24. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleophas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? there in these days kind of humorous right because this is jesus it's like you don't know what happened <laughs> i think he knows what happened i think he knows and he said to them what things and they said to him concerning jesus of nazareth a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before god and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem israel yes and besides all this it is now the third day since these things happened Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they, had, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, they did, but him they did not see. 
And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And there's three ways in there in which he's going to begin to prove to these two men. And this is how he proved himself over those 40 days. He proved himself through the scriptures. He proved himself through the scriptures, through all those Old Testament writings. In fact, I could take you to several verses, but just one simple verse here, 1 Corinthians 15, where it gives us the best explanation of the gospel, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then onward to as many as 500 people at one time. And these are the people that he's giving these proofs to that he is the Christ. And, he, and the point here is that everything that happened in the death and resurrection of Christ in the gospel happened according to the scriptures. Sometimes I'll share something like an interesting tidbit about Jesus in the Old Testament, you know, and it's like, and often people are like, wow, that's really fascinating. It's like how you can find Christ there. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk with Jesus for these 40 days and for him to show you himself in the scriptures? That would be mind-blowing. He would say, look at this and look at that and look at this and look at that. And we would just be like, whoa, those are things we would have never found on our own. In Acts 18, there's this individual named Apollos. Sometime, I've got to tell you his story. It's a fascinating story. Don't have time this morning, but he just was a passionate preacher of the word of God. And listen to what it says about him here. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. I thought that was so interesting. He powerfully refuted, powerfully refuted the Jewish people. And, and I think the, the word powerful, two words stand out there, that powerfully refuted. And, and what does that say to us about the Bible? It tells us the Bible is powerful. Like on Sunday morning, it's not my words that make the difference. It's God's words. Everything I say is to be hinged on, on God's word. His word is powerful. <clears throat> um, I do believe, though, that the passion of Apollos is also intended here. He powerfully refuted the Jews. I mean, God's word is powerful, but his deliverance was powerful. It was passionate. He had, he had taken ownership in what he was sharing. He believed it. And I think that makes a big difference in the end. In the end, what a, that is what a preacher is. He takes God's word, studies it, and communicates it through his own personality, experience, and passion. And this can be true of all of us. That we can take the word of God, study it. We can share it through our own life, through our own experience. We really can because God wants my life to be a defense of the gospel. God wants my life to be a defense of the gospel. And so he powerfully refuted the Jews in the public proving by the scriptures that Jesus, or that the Christ was Jesus. I think that, that goes back to that whole compelling story again. The, the Bible is a compelling story. It deserves to be delivered passionately. Like, this should move us inside. Like, yeah, you, you need to know about Christ. And, but notice this, again, what he says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus perceived, proved himself through the prophecies, through the scriptures, but then through the prophecies, through Moses and all the prophets. And the reality is there are like five areas of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return, all of these things, like hundreds of years in advance, 700 years before he came, we're seeing in scripture how he's going to come. We're learning all these things that are prophetically noted about Christ. Things that that Jesus will be born, when Jesus will be born, where Jesus will be born, how Jesus will be born, why Jesus will be born, and what his birth will look like. All these things are, are recorded in Scripture hundreds of years before they happened. Let me, let me get, show you just a simple one. Because I saw a list this, this week on, on uh, uh, like studying of like 351 prophecies that have already been proved. See, that's a lot of prophecies. Well, let me give you one obscure one here. Look at this one. This is the genealogy back in Genesis chapter 9. The genealogy. Uh, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Shem is one of the three sons of Noah through who com comes the royal lineage of Christ. And so blessed be the Lord, that would be Christ, that would be Jesus. Blessed be, you know, the Jesus to come, the Lord 
who is the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now look in Luke and listen to this prophecy, or not this prophecy, but let's listen to this uh, genealogy in Luke 3. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the, the, the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it goes on through this great genealogy down to verse 36, the son of Canaan, the son of uh, Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah. So Jesus is the son of Shem, and Jesus was what? The Lord, the God of Shem. Isn't that just mind-blowing? But you see little things like this throughout Scripture uh, that just show us how the, the prophetic nature of God sending his son is a prophecy interwoven into Scripture. Here's a much more much more deliberate one we can see, much more clear prophecy. This is uh, the night that Jesus is arrested in the garden there. But, and uh, w- what happens here is he's arrested is that Peter comes out in his defense and hacks off the, the Roman soldier's ear and, and Jesus puts the ear back on and says to Peter, hey, we're, we're not going to do that, don't fight. And why? Because he said, look at what he says. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And that hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as, uh, against, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And the point is when Jesus died on the cross, there were specific things that had to happen at a specific time, had to happen in a specific way with no bones being broken and them, you know, bartering for his cloak and all kinds of things went on that are written in the prophetic scriptures that then came true in his death it's also true when you come to his his birth like he was born in bethlehem of a virgin and 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 wise men would come and all of these things that are embedded in to the prophetic scriptures here's a great quote uh the prophetic odds of jesus a number of years ago peter w stoner and robert c newman wrote a book entitled science speaks the book was based on the uh, science of probability and vouched for by the american scientific affiliation it set out the odds of any one man in all of history fulfilling even only uh, eight of the 60 major prophecies and 270 ramifications fulfilled by the life of Christ. The probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even eight such prophecies would be one in 100 quadrillion, 17 zeros. Um, that is eight of the 60 major prophecies. As I said, there's like 351 prophecies at least on this one list. And those are just the ones that he has already fulfilled. There's more that he's going to fulfill. Which again is certainly one of the arguments for the validity of why the scriptures are true. There's no other book like that. There's nothing else ever been written like that where hundreds of years in advance they tell you down to the detail of how things are going to unfold. And so Jesus proved himself through the scriptures and through the prophecies and then he proved proved himself through the stories. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets and then he proved himself through the actual stories. You know, I have a, I, I have a, a picture here to, to show you, an interesting picture. It's an illustration God gave me a few months back and it didn't fit in the message at the time and it's just been kind of sitting there thinking sometime this is going to be powerful and it fits in today really beautiful here. And it's a question that we can kind of ask. Have you ever asked yourself like, so when he wiped out, when God wiped out the world with a flood in the days of Noah, destroyed the whole earth? And we said he waited until the last possible second. He was down to his last righteous man, Noah, and then he wipes out the earth. And you ever ask the question, why did God wait so long to send Jesus? Like, really? He waited, think about it, he waited 4,000 years. Why didn't he just send him in, you know, 30, why didn't he send him in like 3,500, you know, B.C.? Or, you know, I would change the whole paradigm of B.C., but why didn't he send him like 500 years after the fall So he didn't have to wipe out the earth with a flood. Why why not send him like a lot sooner? Why did he wait for, you know why? Don't answer out loud, but if you think you know why he waited 4,000 years, put your hand in the air. You think you know why he waited, okay? Okay, well here's why, and it's in this picture right here. Here's the cross of Calvary, here's Mount Calvary, here's the foundation of Mount Calvary, 4,000 years. Moses' encounter on Mount Sinai, the Exodus, the promises, Jacob's wail, Gideon's, uh, Gideon's call, Noah, Noah's boat there on Mount Ararat, Abraham's sacrifice on Mount Moriah, Joseph's dreams, Ruth's uh, redeemer, Esther's time, Daniel's 
den and everything else on that list, David's giant, all of that stuff. For 4,000 years, God is making the case, proving that when the Messiah comes, you can't miss him. He's the Messiah. He's the one that, and he's the one that provides salvation for all of those people in the Old Testament as well. All those Old Testament sacrifices are just shadows of the one to come. And so that's why he waited 4,000 years. He made quite a case, quite a defense for the gospel. That's why he waited 4,000 years. I'm glad he did. And today there should be no excuse to not know that Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the Messiah. So Jesus walks on with these two men that day. And listen to how it ends here. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And the scriptures as he shared them, as he taught them from, the, from Moses and, and all the prophets, it just burned within them. It just burned within them. So just understand that Jesus proved himself to them for 40 days and he proved himself to us right in the same sense all of this is in here to prove that he is the messiah and the reality is god wants my life to be a defense of the gospel just like all those people in the old testament who who are a defense of the gospel god wants your life just like david and daniel and esther and ruth and moses and everyone else he wants your life to be a defense of the gospel here's the, the second lesson we'll see this morning we'll go to acts again chapter one picking up now we're going to move from the 40 days and we're going to move into those 10 days right and while and while staying with them he ordered them not to depart from jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the father which he said you heard from me for john baptized with water but you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now um oh that's a mistake there okay down in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is Jesus telling him before he gets ascended, go to Jerusalem for 10 days, get up there in the upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit because I'm going to prove myself through you. Jesus proved himself to them and he proved himself through them. He's going to prove himself through them, and we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 8. The, the reality is, that's about a year-long stretch here. From the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ's ascension, from that time until Paul is converted on the road to Damascus, that's about a year, uh, a, year a year takes place there. And it's, 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 it's an interesting year, as God is going to prove himself through these very disciples. He proved himself to them and now he'll prove himself through them so they get to pentecost they gather for 10 days of intense prayer fueled by the 40 days of proofs that jesus left them with and the supernatural expectations to come so let's look over here in acts chapter 5 a minute and, and we'll get a glimpse here of, of really three simple ways that he proved himself through them uh, Acts chapter 5, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in the name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So, they were told, stop preaching Jesus. They were told that back in chapter 4. We'll, we'll go back there in a moment. But they're told to stop preaching Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And just note, as he, preaches, as, as he proves himself through them, they preached with power. Like they preached with a really incredible power that you just, Peter leads the preaching here, but all the apostles are preaching and it's personal and it's passionate and it's power filled and the disciples are on fire. Now, it's received differently by different people, right? So like the religious leaders already told them, hey, stop preaching. So they're receiving the preaching one way, but the everyday man is receiving it differently. The everyday man says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
like the everyday individual was like convicted of this and like moved by their preaching. Just watch the trajectory unfold in this year-long stretch here in Acts chapter 2 through 8. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that, that day about 3,000 souls on one day. Down in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's three verses just in Acts 2 there, right? Jumping over to Acts chapter 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And then over in chapter 5, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord. More than 3,000 or 5,000. Multitudes of both men and women. And their preaching is powerful. And it's turning the, the whole place upside down. And this is why the religious leaders are like, you've got to stop preaching, man. There's too many people getting converted and we're losing our power. Like we killed Jesus. We put him in the grave to get rid of him. So stop preaching him. You know, the thing that always fascinates me is like, the question that's never dealt with here at all, it's like no one ever says, they never say to them, okay, you're preaching Jesus, where is he? <laughs> it's like, I don't know, it just, never, it just struck me that that never seems to come up in the conversations here. It's like, he came back, everybody saw him alive, and then I guess he ascended. Maybe they told him he ascended, I don't know. He's gonna come back. But just look at the power in their preaching there. It is really, really, really fascinating now back in chapter 5 we saw the interactions here where the religious establishment the religious council is like you got to stop preaching man you got to stop we've had enough of this and uh <clears throat> we mentioned this already right we, we mentioned back in, in chapter 4 this is when they were first told to stop preaching peter heals a lame man there's a lame guy that wants some a handout of money and and peter says i can't give you any money but i can heal you and he heals him now on the next day, their rulers and elders, scribes, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they sent them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? That just really struck me, right? Like, you've just healed this man, by what power? So they noticed the power in their preaching. They noticed the power in their, in their ministry, like, what, by what power and by what name? And part of that, by, by what name, you would think that any, like at that time, any idol or any false god, and they were prevalent at that time, any idol or false god would supposedly have some power. So, so what power you do, what false god, what idol, you know, who are you doing this by? And let it be known to you, says Peter, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So the God we serve, the God we worship, the God who raised him, or gave him this, this miracle of the ability to walk, is Christ, the one you crucified. And what, what's, what's amazing here, listen to it as we go on. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with jesus so they're amazed by the miracle like how did you heal this man what power did you do it but then notice they're, they're just taken back by the boldness of peter like even when they're threatened peter's like i'll tell you who did it the one you crucified christ raised him from the dead and they see this incredible boldness this this incredible power that has so infused their preaching and then of course that they're uneducated common men which you know should give hope to everybody that you're preaching that your ministry that your evangelistic efforts as you share the gospel you don't gotta have a phd you just gotta go out and and let your life be a defense of the gospel and take some of the simple arguments that we've seen in this series and share it with those that you love Share it with those that you love. You know, there's one interesting thing back in chapter 5 then. So they're dealing with these disciples. We're back to chapter 5 now, right? The, the, the second time they've arrested them and said, we told you to shut up the other day and you're still preaching. And Gamaliel has some great wisdom here. He's one of the council. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. What great wisdom by Gamaliel. It's like, just let it go. You know, don't worry about them. And he had some other examples. And, and he said, just, just, it'll just, it'll just fizzle out. And if it doesn't fizzle out, maybe it's really of God, and maybe we don't, we don't want to oppose God. 
pretty powerful, pretty. So there was the power. He proved himself through the powerful preaching there. And then look at verse 32. And we the apostles are witnesses to these things. So they, they're in with the Jewish council and they're saying, we're witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And so he proved himself through them because they shared their testimony. They shared their testimony. They preached with power and they shared their testimony. And I was thinking about everything that they shared, every message that they shared over this year-long span here at Pentecost and on is not included in the scriptures, I'm sure of that. And I'm sure they shared very personal testimonies, like from their own life. Just think about that. Think about that reality. In fact, when they replace Judas, they say, we have to replace Judas with someone who has walked with Jesus from the beginning because the gospel has to have kind of like a personal, a personal side to, 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 to the ministry. You've you got to have a personal relationship with watching Christ work and watching Christ work in your own life. So think about this. Like Peter can speak to what? He can speak to uh, God's personal forgiveness and grace because when he denied Jesus... Jesus didn't give up on him. Jesus came and forgave him and called him back out of his boat and called him back into ministry. Think about Matthew, right? Matthew can preach to the acceptance of, of Jesus because when he was despised, a real low life, looked down on by all his countrymen for being this, this despicable tax collector, Jesus called him and said, hey, come be my follower. You can actually be my follower. James and John, the thuns asunder, could speak to the glory of God because they were there for the transfiguration. Philip was there when he fed the 5,000. Thomas can speak about the, the wounds in his side and the scars in his hands that, God, that, that Jesus visibly showed to him. And Mary could tell you what it's like to go from having a whole you know, host of demons in you to being somebody that worships Christ, she could tell you how the Jesus could just speak your name and could just melt you in an instant. All of them. Like, they have a personal, they're, they're witnesses to this. It's not like they're just sharing some cold, hard facts, you know, from the scripture, but no, this is what we have witnessed as our life has integrated with his life, has intersected with his life. Walter Martin and Jean Martin Riesch, through the windows of heaven, listen to this quote here. Science says if there is any such thing as infallible proof, it is the repetition of the same experience, experiment. Each one of these is the repetition of the same experiment. They all encountered the same phenomenon. What was it? He was alive. That's what changed the history of the world. Jesus rose from the dead and Mary Magdalene encountered him, experiment one. The woman encountered him, experiment two. The disciples encountered him, experiment three. The, the apostles encountered him, experiment four. 500 people saw him after the resurrection, experiment five. And, and just note that they all have experienced Christ in a personal way. And that just gives validity to the gospel record. So he proved himself through them, through their powerful preaching and through the, through the witness, the personal witness as they shared their testimony. And then look at this last one. And when he had called them in, Acts 5.40, when he had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus and he proved himself through them as they rejoiced in their suffering. And this has to be one of the most powerful evidences of Jesus just being proved through their very life because they rejoiced in the fact that they were able to suffer. Like we marvel sometimes, like when Acts 17, Paul is in that, in that jail there, right? And he's singing hymns at midnight. Him and I think Silas, they've been arrested and they're singing hymns at midnight. And we marvel at that, but we forget that, that before that they were, I think they were most likely beaten and thrown into prison. Usually you were beaten and then you were thrown into prison and here they're beaten and it doesn't matter because they rejoice. You know, it's, it's interesting that we all will suffer for certain things in life, won't we, right? Like if you're really a big Detroit Lions fan, you'll sit in the cold and rain to watch a football game and cheer them on. You'll suffer because you love the Lions. Someone puts in the hours and mistreatment at a certain job because they, maybe they like the money they are making. Maybe they believe it'll do something for their career and they stay at a, a job for a long time in that environment. There are those who join the military and end up fighting a war and suffering either during the war or after the war. They suffer because what they believe in our country. 
I think one of the greatest injustices ever perpetrated in our country, personal opinion, if you study this out, you'll find this is what's going on. Right now, everyday people, like you and me, that, that went to Washington, that, that, that infamous J6 political, January 6th political rally, and they went there to peacefully protest, and they ended up arrested and have spent some well over a year in jail facing the worst condi- conditions. Research it out. It's one of, the, one of the greatest injustices in our country ever. But still, many won't concede. They're in jail. They won't concede. Why? Because they believe in why they're there. They believe in why they are there. What an amazing testimony. What an amazing the disciples are because they believe in this reality. You know, the big concern so many have today, again, goes back to the end times. Are we going to go through the tribulation? Are we going to suffer? And as I said last week, I don't think we are. Jesus took my wrath on the cross. I'm not going to be there when he pours out his wrath on mankind. I'm going to be raptured away to glory. So I don't believe that we're going to go through the tribulation time. But I thought about that last night, and I thought, you know, the reality is, I don't think the the question should matter. Like, so what if I did go through the tribulation time? I think we would be shocked. We would be shocked if we went through the tribulation time. We would be shocked at what God would do through us. We would be shocked at the power that would rise up within us because we have Christ. We just all think, oh boy, if I was in that situation, I might just recant Jesus. And I think you'd be shocked. Because I think when you look at Peter and you look at Paul and you look at the apostles and you look at how they suffered for the gospel, you're not seeing them, you're seeing God in them. And I think if you were in a similar situation, you might just be shocked at what Christ might just do inside of you. I really think that is true. I'll say one more thing about the suffering as I close, but what did we learn today then? I got one last little point to add on you, but what did we learn today then? We learned that God proved himself to them and he proved himself through them. To them, through the scriptures and the prophets and the stories and all of the Old Testament, and he proved himself through them, through their powerful teaching, through their personal testimony, through their, their willingness to just suffer here, Right? And we learned that God wants my life to be a defense of the very gospel. Let me leave you with this this morning, then this, this last little point here. Um, Jesus proves himself through us. Like today, he is proving himself through us, through you and me, he is. He wants to, and he is right now when we just let him. Think about that. God wants my life to be a compelling story, and God wants my life to be a defense of the gospel. And think about one of the most practical truths we know here, right? We have been crucified with Christ and we have been raised with Christ. Which means his reality and identity are now mine, right? I've been crucified with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. He has been raised in me. His reality and identity are now mine and he wants to prove himself through you and through me. And the point here is it's entirely plausible for my very life to be a practical defense of the gospel. We look at Peter, we look at Paul, we look at John, all the other apostles, we look at all of them in the scriptures and we're amazed at, at, their, at how God proved himself through them. Let me just tell you, you can be just like them. You can be exactly like them. We're living in even, even, even in a fuller and deeper understanding of the gospel And so all the more when we understand the gospel, how God can present the gospel through you and me. Let me give you five questions here. I'm not going to talk about them. I'm just going to share them here. Write them down in your notes. You want to put together your own personal testimony so that you can go out and that you can give evidence to Christ. Ask yourself these five things. What have I come through? What have I come through? Or, you know, what have I overcome in life? What have I come through through the power of Christ? Secondly, what am I going through? Right now, what am I going through right now? Because whatever you're going through right now, let me tell you, it's a part of God developing you and working in you to prove himself to a world. See, how about this one, what have I left behind? What have I already left behind in my life? Right? What have I left behind? And then D, how am I moving forward? Like how every day am I moving forward with all the obstacles and all the stuff I'm going through and we're all going through stuff. We're all going through stuff all the time. This world is not easy. So how am I moving forward in life and and then E, what am I hoping for? What am I hoping for? 
answer those questions and, 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 and you can kind of compose them together and put them in your own defense of the gospel. That, let, just look at that last one. What am I hoping for? This really ties back into our suffering. Like the disciples rejoicing in their suffering. Here's the reality. We're all looking and hoping for certain things as, as Christians, right? We want God to do certain things in our life. We want God to move in our life in certain ways. And uh, sometimes that involves our sufferings. For Peter, the night when Jesus was arrested and crucified, that was the lowest night of Peter's life. He felt terrible because he realized in that moment, I'm not willing to go and suffer for Jesus, not the way Jesus is, and it was a really low point in his life. And then here he is less than a year later, and now he is rejoicing that he can suffer for Christ, and that's got to be one of the highest points of his life, to come to that point of, of saying, yes, now I know what it means. To, to suffer for Christ and the joy that is found. And Peter can show us some of the dynamics that are present in this whole issue. Like sometimes it takes our personal failure to realize that I gotta stop leaning on myself and my own plans and my own ide ideals. They're not good enough. I just need to trust Christ. Sometimes it takes losing something important to us. Like Peter had a bit of a brodacious attitude, right? And, and God kind of had to uh, break docious attitude. He had to kind of take that from him, kind of humble him. He had to take Peter's fishing boat from him, which he let go of pretty easily, but what does God have to take from your life so you can embrace him and suffer for him and your life can be a real defense of the gospel? Sometimes the growth and transformation we desire requires some hardship. Other times, we don't see the transformation has, that has transpired in our life until we what? Until we go through really deep adversity and then we see, wow, the way I handled that this time compared to you know, five years ago is amazing. In the end, these religious leaders, which were already amazed at the boldness of their preaching, had to be even more taken aback when they saw how they rejoiced at the opportunity to suffer for Christ. We also know that most of the apostles ended up dying for their faith rather than recanting it, their lives never being a greater testimony. And God wants my life to be a defense of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing in our life right now today, each one of us in this room. Sometimes we don't even realize how you're working. We don't realize how we're, you're, you're moving forward in us. Sometimes we, we feel like we just so miss the mark. We, we so fail you. We, we so fall short. And the reality is every day you are working in our life. You are, you're just perfecting yourself in us every day. And you are proving yourself to the world you're proving that you have risen from the grave you're proving that you are the christ the messiah the son of god the very god the one true god you're proving that all through our lives what, what an amazing reality that is may we just trust you open ourselves up to you and uh, be faithful in just sharing our story with a lost world around us give you all the honor and glory and praise in jesus name everyone said Amen. Amen. Amen.